And as always, common drunk. And I tried suicide three times. Or with dramatics, of course. And knowing somebody pulled me out, I guess, unconsciously or subconsciously. So those are my general qualifications. I was the lone wolf type. Uh, the reason I became so agnostic was because of my early background. They sent me to a church boarding school, Episcopal High School in Virginia, where I was going to get all the idealism of the FFB. Well, when I got out of there, after having church four times Sunday, Bible reading before every meal, I swore that I would never go to church again unless I had to for some reason. It built up, and then going into the service and seeing people killed, some of my best friends, uh, I lost all faith in everything. And then the alcohol came along, and I knew that I wasn't drinking like other people, and unconsciously I started going more and more into the shell, and everybody else was wrong but myself. So that was my attitude when I came into AA. I was lonesome, bored, self-useless. I couldn't find a niche that seemed to be worthwhile. I couldn't find anything. I think my subconscious prayer, if any, uh, was hoping I wouldn't wake up on those drugs night after night. What was the use? Everybody was SOB. It wasn't any use of trying. That horrible attitude of uselessness, lonesomeness. So that was my attitude when I came in AA, and that is why I was so agnostic. And that is why when I saw these folks in New York, when I came in on January 38th, that uh, I tried not to go fast on this thing. I was scared to death because I saw so many people get these hot flashes and then were suddenly taken drunk. So I was very, I was, I liked the fellowship. I liked the people. They spoke my language. I felt at home. But I, I couldn't go for the God stuff. I believe that I'm the only one in AA where the members prayed that I get drunk. <laughs> I didn't hear that till after the book was written. As I said, I came in in January, and I was staying dry uh, until June of 38. During those six months, once in a while, under some way or another, I'd be on my feet talking. I'd say, oh, this is wonderful, this fellowship is grand, but damn this God stuff. That made me very popular. So then I understand that Bill and Bob Smith and some of the boys got behind the doors and started doing little praying. Well, the prayers finally came through. In June, I'd gone and done did it. I was working for one of the AAs, selling automobile polish the hard way with a polishing machine, showing off, making demonstrations. And I was in private. And I was drunk, and I was broke. I drank for four days, and for the first time in my life, I did not have a blackout. The thing kept going through my mind. I couldn't get sober and I couldn't get drunk. I was just in a fog. Those SOBs, I got here I am drunk. They said I had to do this, I had to do that. 
They're screwballs. They're nuts. They've been in insane asylums. They've been in lots worse places than I have. But I couldn't get over this point that they were so coming here I was drunk. That is a thing that cracked the shell. It made me stop fighting. I didn't have a flash. I just stopped fighting and listened. And gradually, the thing took hold. I don't think I saw the spiritual side of the program until I'd been in AA at least almost two years. And I still am glad I did it that way. I'm still, because I'm the kind of a guy that, like all drunks, are very emotional. We go up and we come down just as fast. So this time I decided I would not try to be the big shot and the thing overnight. So I gradually held myself close and listened and tried to get the education and the spiritual knowledge of what was wrong. I still have never been able to analyze myself. The only way I can see myself is in new people coming into AA. Each one gives me a little angle on myself. But that's enough of my little story. But you can see the attitude that I had and why I was so agnostic. I think in the original crowd, the rest of them were just as bad, except they didn't have the good old bow of guts to mention it. <laughs> so I have got a few notes here to try to keep myself in line without going off half cut. I hope I'll be able to hold to it. The spark of Alcoholics Anonymous was struck at 182 Clinton Street, Brooklyn, New York. It was in Bill's kitchen the middle of November, 1934. Bill had been in town hospital twice that year, and his last drink previous to that had been about four months, which is his longest spell of sobriety. Bill is Bill Wilson the guy that really laid the foundations for us here with the help of a few of us guys around at that time. Eddie Thatcher, who he'd known some seven or eight years previously, gone to school with but all his way back, had called him on the phone and Bill said, come on up, Eddie. And Eddie said, are you drinking? Bill says, oh, just a little bit. And he said, Bill, I've got religion. I don't drink anymore. Eddie had been in nut houses all over the country. He had never been able to stand on his own feet at any time. So Bill invited him up, and he said he wanted to see what the screwball had to offer. Well, Eddie had gotten dry in the Oxford group. So he came up, and they were talking to Bill. And the way Bill tells it, he had a big pitcher of orange juice mixed with gin on the kitchen table, and Eddie started telling him about this Oxford group, the spirituality, these four absolutes, absolute hope, absolute charity. I've forgotten the red purity and a few others. Four. And he said, Bill, if you take these, you'll stop your drinking and start helping other people. Bill looked at him, and the way he puts it, he says, well, this guy has gone from a drunk to a religious fanatic. So Bill continued his thinking, and about three days later, 
He ended up in town's hospital. <coughs> the way he puts it, he was on this bed in this delirious condition, and he heard Dr. Silkworth, who was really the first doctor to pay attention to what we were trying to do. Dr. Silkworth had seen Bill have come in there three times that year and seen him just go to pot. And Bill was in this bed in the delirious condition, and he heard Dr. Silkworth talk to Lois outside the door. Dr. Silkworth said to Lois, Bill will not live six months. He's a goner. His liver is gone. His whole guts have burned out. Bill said he heard that, and all of a sudden, he felt so useless. All of a sudden, he felt he was on top of a big hill, that the wind was blowing through him. This is the hot flash that he had. And all of a sudden, he started thinking about every talk in that kitchen. He said, well, the guy is great, but he's sober. He's been insane for years, but he's sober. Maybe he's got some. So he called Silkworth in about an hour later, and he said, Doc, I got some. He said, am I going crazy or whatnot? I've had this terrific elation. I was shaking here, and now I'm not shaking. What is it? Doc fellow shook his head. He says, well, I don't know, Bill, but you're in a hell of a lot better condition than you were a few hours ago. I suggest you hold on to it. And that is what AA grew up from. Bill got out of the hospital a few weeks later, and he started coming back to the hospital and talking to other drunks. Town Hospital is the carriage trade drunks around New York. He was talking to these guys, telling them about helping other drunks and this and that, and how they'd get well if they followed his path and so on and so forth. And some of them would listen, and some of them would stay dry a few weeks and go out, and then they were suddenly taken drunk. Bill got the idea he was to save the world with the drugs. Then he started going to the Oxford Group meetings. Now, in New York, they had a Calvary mission that was hooked in with the Oxford Group. Now, the, uh, the Oxford Group, as a group, had very little use for the drugs. But they used the Calvary mission as good come-on stuff to get new members for the Oxford Group. The Calvary mission had all these drugs there that they were helping out clothing and flopping them for a few days. So Bill would visit this mission. And would talk to the boys there. So nearly every day, or every day, for about five or six months, he'd make the trip to the hospital, to the Calvary Mission, and talk to Grug. He couldn't get anybody to listen to him for any sustained period, but he found himself sober. He found he had a mission in the world, to save all the drugs, and to do it real quick. But then he happened to get a chance to go into a new company, and if he got these proxies together, he would have control of this company. Uh, I might say that Bill had been a promoter in the stock market for years, a syndicate man. 
The guy that, that uh, goes around and gets the short things for the boys to build up to make the kill, and he got a percentage. So here's a chance to do the same thing on this little new company, and he goes over to Akron to consummate the deal. The way he puts it, he had just there enough to get over there. And when he got there, he found that the other guy had twice as many proxies as he did. So he was out of luck, dejected, and he was in the Portage Hotel in Akron, Ohio. And for the first time in six months, he got jittery. He started pacing the lobby floor, and he began to think. One end was the bar, and then he noticed all of a sudden that the other end of the lobby was the church directory. What to do? So he thought he'd better find another drug to work on, get somebody to talk to. He didn't give a damn this time whether he saved the other drunk, but he just wanted to talk himself out. He wanted to talk to some drunk. He wanted to see himself. So he went down the directory list until finally he found a uh, Oxford Group minister, or a minister who was mixed up with the Oxford Group, and suggested that he get uh, in touch with Henrietta Slavely of the rubber people, he called Henrietta Sibling and thought telling about his dilemma. And Henrietta said, I think I know just the guy. We have a drunken doctor here that we've been trying to work on. Says, you just wait there and I'll come down and pick you up. So Henrietta Sibling came down, picked Phil up, took him out to Bob Smith's house, Dr. Bob who became number two in AA. Well, Dr. Bob wasn't there, and that was Sunday. It happened to be Mother's Day. So Bill started talking to Annie Smith, telling him about all this wonderful thing and how he was going to save all the drunks. He says, well, maybe you can work on Bob. He wants to stop, and he can't. So Bill stuck around there a couple of hours, no Bob Smith. Finally, Bob comes in, potted with a potted plant, potted lily, <laughs> and falls flat on me on the porch. Bob says, well, who is this screwball this year? He's a drunk from New York that is staying sober by helping other drunks. He wants to talk to you. Of course, Bob is in pretty pitiful shape. He says, well, we're giving ten minutes on the outside. Well, that was around about 10 o'clock, and the way the story goes, they talked about 7 o'clock in the morning, chit-chatting backwards and forwards. Now, it would be a nice story to say that Bob never drank again, but Bill stayed there at Bob's house for several weeks. I don't think he had the fare to get back to New York. And they chit-chatted, and they talked. But all of a sudden, Doc had to go to the medical convention down in Atlantic City. So Bill said he'd hold the fort and wait for him to come back. Well, the worst thing happened. Bill, I mean, Bob did come back, but terrifically drunk. And that was the last drink Bob had was on the way back from Atlantic City. That was in June 1935. That's when AA actually started 
Uh, or how the fundaments were laid. The way I look at AA, it has been a series of, of building a tremendous fellowship pattern, which we now call Alcoholics Anonymous. First, we had to go through and do the excavation, the trial and error of getting the foundation in. The AA book was the foundation. The walls were the groups, and the group experience, and the roof was the traditions to hold everything together, the traditions and the third legacy of the unification, to keep us all working along the same line, to keep us from going off half cocked. That's the way I see the overall picture. So I'll try to give you a few highlights of the excavations, and they were good. So uh, Bill stayed with Bob for about three months, and they finally caught one guy in the Akron Hospital, which is Bill Dotton. That was about two months after the two had gotten together, and Bob had been sober. Bill Dotson had been a disbarred lawyer. He had a tremendous practice there in Akron, and he considered a Bob a Barclay. And Bill had nothing else to do except to accept these two fellows. It was a place for him to go when he got out of the hospital, so he accepted. Bill Dodson has not had a drink since that day. So the three went along and tried to save others. There was no more saving in Akron that year in 35. In 36, they picked up a couple more. So in December, Bill went back to New York. That was the end of 35. He got active in the Oxford group. He made his pilgrimages to the town's hospital and to Calvary. He was keeping himself sober, but he wasn't sobering anybody else. So in 1935, the middle of 1935, the character that we owe so much to came into the picture was a man named Hank Parker. Probably none of you know of him. We thought Bill was a promoter, but when Hank came in, he was a promoter of all time. He had been sales manager of Standard Oil Company of New Jersey and had been fired. So Bill, I mean, Bill got him started in the middle of 36. That was the first solid member we had. Incidentally, Pank stayed with us until the book was finished, and the guy is still drinking ever since. But he gave the contribution. He gave the push to Bill. He gave the inspiration. And I dare say the book would not have been written if it hadn't been for Hank. So during 36 and 37, just before I came in, Bill's house was the AA foundation of everything. Uh, you, nobody could come into AA without going through Bill's house for wet nursing, tapering off, giving the Bible, uh, burning a few sheets and whatnot. So during 36 and 37, 75 people came into the New York division. I know the New York section much better than I know the Akron. 
But I understand that Akram was doing practically the same thing in Bob Smith's house. Coming in, anybody that they'd get to listen to him, even if they had to give him a flop, was a good prospect. <laughs> At least they had somebody to talk themselves out to. So they had 75 go through Bill's house and stay there for a week or two, uh, just a few days. And not a single one stayed sober. One man committed suicide in Bill's house. Bill went away for a weekend. The man had been sober for a few months. And he suddenly got, suddenly got drunk. And he went and hocked all Bill's and Lloyd's clothes, the good ones, if any. And he couldn't face Bill when he came back. And he hung himself in the bathroom. Those are some of the tragedies. Some of the people we owe so much to in AA, who had to be the experiment. So at the end of 1937, they finally broke away from the Oxford group in New York. They hadn't broken away in Akron, or they didn't break away from Akron for another year or two. But they found they couldn't sober them up by putting drunks in with the so-called normal people. Neither side understood the other. So they finally broke away in November of 1937. I came in in January. In January, there were three people, after three years, who had six months sobriety in New York. That was Bill, Hank Parkhurst, and a fellow named Fitz Mayo, who was instrumental in bringing me in. They were the trio that went all around to the different universities, hospitals, to find out if there was a cured alcoholic. They went around, and the doctors, nobody could, could say whether they had been cured or not. Well, lots of them said they had cured ones, but when they investigated, they found they'd never find the cure. It wasn't until 1941, two years after the book, that we knew, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. We intimated and said in our book, but we did not know. John Hopkins didn't know. Bellevue didn't know. Mayo didn't know. They had never made the investigation. So those are some of the things on the excavation. In 1938, AA was like a floating crap king. Whoever was shooting the dice was big man for that day. Everybody carried his program under the hat. Uh, if you follow Bill for a while, and you didn't like some of the things he did, then you'd pick out another <laughs> crap shooter. But we were flying completely blind. The only thing we didn't know was they took a drunk to understand a drunk. And that's why I say, in my estimation, the keystone in AA is the understanding fellowship. Not the sympathetic, but the understanding. We understand each other. We can lay the pipeline to each other that no other person can. Because nobody will listen to a drunk but another drunk. But that's the only thing we have. So in 38 there, what to do? To get some sort of a program, to get something that we can stick our teeth in and we all agreed on. So it was decided that we would have a pamphlet. 
Akron did not like the idea of a pamphlet or getting any set program. They said, let's keep it simple. Every man for himself. We'll spread this thing from word to mouth. We said, oh, no, you can't do that. Look at the millions that are yet to be fixed up. And besides, we are the only people in the world that know anything about alcoholism. We are the only people. And besides, we are all broke, and we need a couple bucks. Incidentally, there wasn't an automobile owned by a New York member until 1941. That sounds silly out here in Texas, but it didn't sound silly to us. So it was decided in June 1938, when I had my little trouble, I don't know whether I had to do with it or not, that we would draw up a pamphlet. So Bob wrote his story, which is now in the AA book, and Bill wrote his story. They took that to Harper's. And uh, Harper's, uh, we weren't known there at all. And Bill took it up with Hank Parkhurst. Hank was the one that lined the thing up. So the river, the two chapters, and Harper said, We'll give you $3,000, Mr. Wilson, if you'll write a book along these lines. We had the idea of just a short pamphlet. And uh, Hank said, swell. And they bowed out. They made no deal there. So Bill, Hank got a hold of Bill out in the hall, and he said, listen, Bill, if it's worth $3,000 to Harper's, it's worth a million bucks to us. Don't sell so we decided we would go into the book business. So then immediately, at the end of June, we started making up corporations. The first corporation was 100 men. Oh, that was going to be the corporation that handled this tremendous book that was selling a million copies in the first year. Incidentally, in our first year, we sold 350 copies. That was all the members. But uh, this promotion was done beautifully on this hundred men. We were going to sell stock at $25 a share. You could pay for it $5 a month or a dollar a month or whatever we could get out of it. And in this uh, brochure we had, we showed you what Tom Olive had done at one buck and had gone up to $800. We showed you what had happened to the Christian science Oh, we showed you some beautiful pictures of what a buck would do in something that's going ahead like this thing. So 49 of us in Akron and New York, my contribution, I think, was 10 bucks, gave $2,800 to start the book. Well, Mr. Parkhurst was a promotion man. He did very little writing on the book. Uh, but he was the guy that was doing the pushing. So we got 2800 bucks, And before the who'd even gotten our stuff together, he goes out and buys the plates, bronze plates, for the book, for $1,300 of <laughs> We were going to own this thing completely. We didn't want anybody fiddling in this thing. So 49 of us got the whole $2,800. Then we sat Bill down and said, now, we want you to stay to get your information together for this masterpiece that's going to save the world and make us a bucket deal. So Bill wrote, uh, uh, really got all his information from four books. 
Incidentally, if you all are interested in this, you might like to know the names of these books. If so, you can write them down. But these are the books that are the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, previous to AA, there had only been one good book come out on alcoholism in this century. As a matter of fact, the word alcoholic was not known before AA to the layman. It was known in a few, very few old textbooks. as Dipsomania or Rummy or Sutton. So this one book that had been so good, incidentally, nearly all the psychology in AA book came from this. Bill got a tremendous amount of information. Was Dick Peabody's Common Friends of Drinking. Dick Peabody was a drunk, and I stayed dry for 11 years by running a drunk farm up in Boston. He had everything that AA had except the spiritual man and working with other drunks. He was a psychologist, self-educated, and he stayed sober as long as he worked on drunks. And 11 years he stayed dry, and then he started turning his practice over to two or three others that he'd educated. And as soon as he did, he went in back into alcoholism, and he died a drunk. Incidentally, in Peabody's book, every chapter, he said, this was in 1930 he wrote this book, he said, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And he had to prove it himself. So that was our psychological, where we got our psychological information for Alcoholics Anonymous. The second book where we got our spiritual experiences came from James's Religious Experiences. You'll see a great deal of quotes from it in the book, if you can wade through it. <laughs> then the, we're another place that we've got a good deal of the God as you understand him ideas was the Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. And the last, where we got most of our traditions, came from this believing world by Lewis Brown, who killed himself about six months ago. This believing world was a cross-section of all religions to date, the rise and fall and why. So we got a great deal out of that to keep from falling like some of the other spiritual groups have fallen, where there's too much personality, too much property, and too much politics. So Bill wrote his four books, I mean, uh, read his four books, and then he started in July, latter part of July 1938, writing about a chapter a week of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. We had no label then. It was 100 Men Corporation. We hadn't decided on a name. We wrote the book and get, put the name after it. So Bill was writing about a chapter a week. He would make three copies. One copy would go to Akron, double space. One copy would be for the office file. And one would go to the New York group, which amounted to about 15 or 20, at a closed meeting in Bill's house on Tuesday night at 182 Clinton Street. He would read over the chapter he'd read, he'd written that week. And in the double spacing, we'd all take pot shots at it. 
I'll bring you down to this and bring you down to that. And Akron did the same thing, and then the two copies came back, and Bill re-edited. That's why you can find an AA book not a damn thing that anybody can argue with, because they don't say you have to do a thing. It says we found that most of us had to do certain reasonable things, yet there have been some others that have done something else. So that's the reason why I think the book is so great. Uh, from a literature point of view, it's probably lousy. But there's, there's nothing in there that, that you can find a loophole. Because here are these hundred drunks that are better than any lawyer in the world picking out those loopholes. So then in August, we decided, well, now we're going to have, we're first going to have the 100 Men Corporation, which will be a book-selling proposition. And two-thirds of that went to Hank and Bill, and the other third to us stockholders, the 2,800 bucks. They were very, they were going to be reasonable. They wouldn't give us a third anyway. See, the idea was to write this book and to make it so thorough. Uh, we never thought anything about groups. We didn't know anything about the fellowship being necessary. We thought all you had to do is give the guy self-knowledge, let him get down on his knees and pray, and he'd have this flash like Bill did. Everybody had to have a flash like Bill or Bob, or they couldn't make it. And uh, then, well, the past, they wouldn't drink anymore. We had no idea about groups. So that was the idea of writing these million books the first year. Now, there would be a few people that couldn't get well, just a few, not many, that couldn't get well in the book alone. And then us, us experts would stock these drug farms all over the country. And we would have the drunks over here, but we'd have a nice home over here for ourselves. But we were going to save them. Nobody else knew anything about alcoholism. We'd been dry a year, maybe six months. We knew all the answers. We proved it. So then in August, we decided we had to have some dough. We had to set up this foundation for drunk farms. So we called it the Alcoholic Foundation. Incidentally, the Alcoholic Foundation can do damn near anything but rob a bank. It can run drunk farms, it can go into education, it can do damn near anything. Just the things we talk against today. <laughs> so the Alcoholic Foundation was set up with five members on it, five alkies. Bill, Bob, a fellow named Harry Brick, and I've forgotten, Fitz Mayo, and then there's one other. But anyway, all of a sudden, in about a month after that, three out of the five were drunk. So that was the idea that came up that we thought we'd better put a few non-alcoholics on this, <laughs> give it a little backbone. So then we had the two corporations, 100 men and the Alcoholic Foundation. But then we had to have a publishing company. So uh, all this is before the book was finished. So we had to have a publishing company. I mean, these Hank and Bill with these damn corporations interlocking. I still don't understand why we have a foundation, but that's my personal opinion. But anyway, we had these, a new one came in. We call it the Works Publishing Company. A lot of people may have known this now. I think it was in the grapevine a month or so ago. Well, the names we picked up just like that. The Alcoholic Foundation, we've just been talking with a few of the Rockefeller 
people, so we thought the foundation would be interesting to them in case uh, we wanted to go to see them. So we called it the Alcoholic Foundation. So in the Works Publishing Company, we got the label from an old expression we use, it works. I don't know what it was that works, but anyway, we had something that works. Because here it was half a dozen of us dry. So we called it the Works Publishing Company. So we had these three corporations. So Bill was writing the chapters. We were editing at the different meetings and so forth. But then in uh, October, we found we had a gal dry for damn near a year. And that, that, well, what the hell are we going to do with this corporation, this hundred men? We have a gal. We didn't know there were any drunk women. So what were we going to do about that? Hundred men corporation. Besides, the $2,800 had gone at that time, so we didn't need that corporation anyway. <laughs> so we decided to drop the, tw- uh, the hundred men corporation and seek a new name. The name came there being the Exit. This way you have it. Uh, the Lonely Road and a few other things. But we found all of them had been used by somebody else. Then this meeting in the latter part of October, we were chewing the fat there at this Tuesday meeting, deciding on a label. Most of the information was in. Chapters were being sent in from on uh, personal stories from Akron and New York. We had about 20 at that time. But still no label. As you notice in the book, there's no mention of Alcoholics Anonymous throughout the book. There's no mention of truth throughout the book, except in one chap- chapter which was written after just before the book went to press, A Vision for You. <coughs> so this, we were chewing over these different names, and all of a sudden, this guy got up and said, Alcoholics Anonymous. And everybody started saying, quiet. This guy had just come out of a nut factory. <laughs> and only been dry about two weeks. Incidentally, we found out later, he's a man that started the New Yorker magazine. His name was Joe Worden. Alcoholics Anonymous. Somebody said, Anonymous Alcoholics. They switched that around a while. And that evening, they decided on Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, we did not use it for the traditional way we talk about it today. The only reason was we wanted to make it easy for the drunk to come in so he could cover up. You're going to be anonymous here. And that's the only label, the only reason why we use it, Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was the first two letters in the alphabet. It was a quickie. It was a promotional deal. It was a beauty. So it became Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) Then the end of 1938... We published a motherless copy of this book. There's only about a dozen copies in existence. I lost my copy in San Francisco six months ago, then. It was my greatest pride. This was the brief of the book. There was a tremendous amount of changes between December and April 39 when the book came out. And we sent the copies of this motherless copy to different doctors to buy this model list for three fifty, and if and when we got a book you got it because <laughs> we were broke again we were always broke uh, we were always broke uh, 
the $2,800 it goes. For 1939, we got a windfall from town, town hospital. I think he and Bill at that time were making a few deals on the side. The town hospital would take care of all the drugs around New York. So we got 2500 bucks from town. So with the 2500 bucks, we went to the Cromwell Publishing Company, and we said we want 5000 bucks of Alcoholics Anonymous. We had the stuff together pretty well. But before we took it there, we had one uh, remarkable thing happen. We had, uh, one of the best critics at that time was a fellow named Musil at New York University of Columbia. I've forgotten which one. And for 300 bucks, he edited the book. And he only took 20% out, which I understand is phenomenal, even for the best writers, only a 20% reduction. So we take this to the Cromwell Publishing Company. They said they'd lend us the rest. They took the 2500 But when the book was published, it would have to be put in a bonded warehouse, and we would have to pay two and a half before we could pull each book out. So we had our 5,000 books in the Cromwell Warehouse in May, April or May, 1939. We made the book about three times as big as it is now. The book is uh, pretty near that big to make them think they were getting the three dollars and a half worth. Those are some of the big promotion deals. Then we had a deal with Dr. Fishbein, at least we thought we had through. Dr. Fishbein was head of the AMA then. And Dr. Fishbein had told uh, Dr. Towns that he would take this and spread it all over the medical journal about this new thing that was so wonderful. So the first five books that came out of the warehouse went to Dr. Fishbein. He was on his way to Chicago. He was going to read it on the way, give it to his editor. That was in uh, May 39. Give it to his editor. And we'd have a blurb in the AMA, and we'd be made overnight with a medical okay on it. Well, we didn't hear anything about that until about three or four months later. And the AMA did have an article about AA in it. They said, we see nothing significant new in the Alcoholics Anonymous book. <laughs> the Reader's Digest was clamoring to have this information at that time. But they got a little lazy or they changed editors or something happened and we never got into that. Our first publicity came out in August. We had a boy named Morgan Ryan who had uh, been in the radio business. He was 35. He'd been sober by four months. And he was going to get us on We the People. We the People program then was one of the top programs. And he was going to tell his story about being saved by Alcoholics Anonymous. And that would bring in the book. So we sent out 10,000 postal cards to doctors and dentists around New York telling them to listen to We the People. So uh, we were a little afraid of Morgan Ryan. So two AAs acted as bodyguards for three days until the program came up. And we had him locked in the downtown athletic club in New York so he couldn't get drunk. So we got Morgan on, we the people, and he did a damn good job. So then we started calling up the radio station, tell us about the inquiries, how many he's got. We got exactly two inquiries. Nobody was interested in alcoholism. And that was coast-to-coast program, too. 
another dead duck. And we were in broke again. Then we decided we'd all pitch in, and some way or other we got 200 bucks. We were going to put an article in the New York Times book review about this brand new book, Alcoholics Anonymous, that was going to save all the drunks in the world. We had this beautiful two-by-three ad in the New York Times literary section. So then we all started making bets around the side of how many inquiries we would have. The inquiries went anywhere from us conservative ones of 5,000 up to 50 or 60,000 for the ones that are not too conservative. So we had a box number, 458, in the Knickerbocker Post Office. So Monday morning, Bill and Hank go down to the post office box and they peeped in. No mail in there. Bill said, don't bother about that. So they got it in sacks back there. They can't put it in that box. <laughs> so they inquired in the window in the bundle room. Apparently there weren't any sacks. So they did that tour every day. Well, it takes several days for the New York Times to get around to the country town. That's where we're going to hit them. So we finally got from that ad in the New York Times, which we paid 200 bucks for. I don't know where we ever got it from. We got two inquiries, and both of them were drunken doctors. Not for themselves, but telling us more or less to go to hell. So that was our experience there. But <clears throat> then we thought putting the book out with a seven-day trial. If you didn't like it, you could send it back in seven days. I think we still have that on the pant on the jacket. Incidentally, the jacket was made by uh, Ray Campbell, who committed suicide two days, uh, two about two years later. He got interested in the psychological answer. So about this time, Bill had, uh, through his brother-in-law, had gotten a contact with uh, Dr. Richardson. Dr. Richardson was a spiritual advisor of John D. Rockefeller. He was really head of the Foundation Fund Distribution. And he was a grand old man. Incidentally, he's been on the Foundation. I think he died a month or two ago. But Dr. Richardson was our godfather. So Bill and Hank would talk to Richardson about this AA thing and how we needed this and that. Hank would say we needed thousands of dollars to put this thing over and Bill says all we wanted is the spiritual end, this battle backwards and forwards. Poor uh, Richardson didn't know where he was going to come in. And it wasn't until about six months later that we got to Nelson Rockefeller, who was sort of the head man around the office at that time. Of course, John D. Junior, I think he, I've forgotten where he was, he wasn't around town. Anyway, Nelson Rockefeller was our contact. <clears throat> so, after much conversing backwards and forwards for about eight months with the folks in the Rockefeller Foundation, Nelson Rockefeller promised he would have 200 of his best friends at a banquet to meet eight of us drunk. Of the Eight of us, where one of us was placed in each table. Of the 200, they were the biggest men in the United States. They were the men that had helped Rockefeller fight prohibition unsuccessfully. I mean, fight for prohibition. We had Sars in there from Ford. We had Wendell Wilkie. 
We had Owen Young. We had nearly all the big shots of that day. And there was eight of us drunk, and 60 people came. We figured afterwards there was $3 billion in that room represented. And everybody got up and said how wonderful we were. Dr. Fosdick got up and said we were a spiritual group that were going to change the world. Foster Kennedy, president of the American Psychiatric Society, says it's the only new thing in psychology as far as the drunk. Everybody said we were wonderful. We had the best promotion man in the country at that time promoting this banquet, Ivy Lee, who has done all of all of Rockwell's promotions. We said, well, now hard times are gone. So this was in February 1940, about seven, eight months after the book came out. And then Nelson Rockefeller got up after we'd all talked, including Bill, not myself, but Bill. And he says, now I want to tell you folks, I've had you together some other times for certain reasons, for financial help on certain philanthropies that I believed in, but this is the only group that does not need any dough. <laughs> and the way Bill puts it in, and we saw the three billion dollars walk out the door. Well, we did get twelve hundred dollars from that the sixty wealthiest men in the country, and that twelve hundred dollars we got for three years. Incidentally, uh, we are the only group that the Rockefellers have ever worked with that paid off every cent that we ever borrowed from. We paid that $3,600 back. Well, just about the time of this Rockefeller dinner, just before, Bill had lost his home. And for two and a half years, he was to live with other AAs. He didn't have a home for two and a half years. Just toward the post. I know Bill only had one suit of clothes, and it was a ragged suit. But he believed in this thing. We all did, too, but we all went out and worked, trying to make a living. But Bill stuck by the thing. He had nothing except what seemed to flow over. But he's the fellow that got us to go. So at the, the time of the Rockefeller dinner in 1940, we were in hot for $20,000, practically all on Bill's no. Then in the end of 39, in September 39, we got our first newspaper publicity in the Plain Dealer in Cleveland. In Cleveland that time, there were about 15 members. In 60 days, they grew from 15 to 150 members. The terrific drive. Those five articles were written by a fellow named Larry Jewell who had only been dry two weeks. Incidentally, he's the guy that saved Roy Yergin in Houston, Texas, a couple of years later. Years ago later. Larry Jewell crossed by and wrote this first pamphlet we had in AA, which was those plain dealer articles. A month later, Fulton Osler, who was the uh, publisher of the Liberty magazine, gave us our first national public. We thought, here it comes this time. Alcoholics and God. Some of you all have seen that piece. We thought, now we're in the book business. This will really put it over. But we did sell 300 books from a nationwide article. 
So that's the way it went along. Now, the first, uh, first institution, medical institution that okayed us, was the Rockland State Hospital for the Insane. The funny part of it is, those fellows believed in us a whole lot more than we did. Dr. Smith up there. Dr. Smith would send a busload of his worst drunks all the way to New York, which is 50 miles away. This is in Austin. 50 miles away to have meetings down in New York. He did that for three years. And the guys were put on their honor and not one guy skipped. And so those are some of our best members today. So that's the excavation and the foundations of AA. The framework we'll go through a little faster. But those are some of the trials and tribulations. The people talk about the good old time AA. In my estimation, AA has improved a thousand percent. I mean, it's improving each our our approach. We we educate the guys so much faster and quicker and more thoroughly than we have ever been able to in the old days. So these geniuses that you look back on, we were a little selfish, wiping. But those are some of the things we had to learn. We had nothing to do with this book. It was pushed into shape. The, the whole group angle was pushed into shape by God or something larger than ourselves. We couldn't have done it. So then the flames start going up. In uh, the end of 1939, we had three groups with about 300 members. That time, the old-timers or the older members start going out from the different groups. Earl Treat left the Akron group and started the Chicago group. Archie Trowbridge left the Akron group and started the Detroit group. Larry Jewell went to Houston. A big fat Jew who sold Venetian blinds, opened up Atlanta, Miami, Jacksonville. The last person in the world. He was taking these letters that were coming into New York and got them together to form these different groups. Fitz Mayo in the South, we started Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, and Wilmington. Then he died of cancer, poor guy. Then in August 1940, we got our first break, finally. Judge Buck, in the Philadelphia area, started coming to our meeting. <coughs> Judge Buck's family owned the Saturday Evening Post. So Judge Buck took Bill and some of the boys up to the editorial room of the Post and laid it on the line. We didn't know that the editorial staff had gotten one of these copies of the monolith and knew a whole lot more about it than we thought we did. So Sadine Post says, sure, we'd like to have an article on on Alcoholics Anonymous. Just the thing we are looking for, we've been putting this thing aside. This is the latter part of 1940. And we're going to find one of our ace men to write it, Jack Alexander. Well, Jack Alexander came around, talked to Bill, and Bill said, please, don't write a thing until you've seen 20 groups. And don't make any spot opinions. We found out afterwards that uh, Alexander was the best trust buster they had on the post. 
He's the guy that busted the Hines case and two or three other cases. And the idea was was to nip this new Oxford group bug right in the before he got started. In other words, to expose this racketeering in alcoholics anonymous. But when Jack Alexander came in and saw these groups and saw what we were trying to do, he became so impressed. And he said today that he's never been able to write an article that is anywhere near approach that Saturday Evening Post article of March 1941. That Post article brought us 10,000 inquiries, sold us 8,000 books. It was the largest sale of the Saturday Evening Post up to that time. It was the largest, it, uh, ten times, I mean, I think the, uh, they told us in 1945, the inquiries from that post had been something like 40,000, which is about ten times the amount they'd ever gotten on any other article in the Saturday Evening Post. So you can see, a month, a year before we were a bunch of bums, but the post at that time was the main magazine. Then the Reader's Digest was interested, and everybody was interested. Nobody could write too much about it. We were on our way. And then we had the Rockefeller, uh, went out on the wires after the Rockefeller dinner. We didn't realize. From that dinner, we'd got millions of dollars of publicity, because it went out on the, all the wires that Rockefeller thought AA was all right. It gave us an okay, which we needed so badly. <laughs> Then in, then in 41, we start getting into our problems. Small groups, clubs, private hospitals, rest homes, all these routines. And there was one guy that wanted to run a series. He worked out a series with one of the insurance companies in Jacksonville that he was going to cover the whole United States without consulting New York on a series of AA articles in, in combination with... Uh, the insurance company. And, of course, he was going to make the headquarters of Alcoholics Anonymous in Jacksonville. Well, those are some of the problems we had. These big shots going around after a few months and using AA and start making new claims for AA. Of course, we've done it, but we've done it honestly and spiritually. <laughs> then our first medical okay that amounted to anything, came from Lawrence Cobb. He was Assistant Surgeon General of the U.S. Health. We got him to a Philadelphia meeting, and we had a reporter there. Lawrence Cobb is a man that set up all the narcotic hospitals throughout the country, and he was very active in AA at that time. He was talking with Bill practically constantly, exchanging ideas, giving his Bill his information on narcotics and whatnot. So Lawrence Cobb got up from that meeting. He didn't know he had a, a general's uniform on, because that was his rank. And he got up and said alcoholism was the fourth major disease in this country, and AA had the best answer to date. That didn't hurt us. And then Yale started taking the interest in it. They gave us a medical okay. Lawrence Cobb was very active in the Yale group when it first started. But we owe so much to so many of these non-alcoholics. The four women that did so much to hold this thing together was Lois Wilson, who stood by all the way through when Bill was half nuts, and Ruth Hart that wrote the transcript that was our secretary for the first few years. 
she's the one that found our serenity prayer in the New York Times one day and sent it around to a few groups and gradually we adopted it. And then Dorothy Snyder Rohr, who was the standby in Cleveland, and Annie Smith. Those four women, they baked the beans. They exchanged the clothes with the other gals. They, we just lived in each other's house in those days. We had to. We had nowhere else to go. It was a very close foundation. It was too close. That's why I think AA today is so much better that we get impersonal in our AA work. We do not try to take these people individually and save them. All we can do is fan them around and let them find their own way. It's much better. Then they don't stand on our feet, which weakens, is my point of view. Then the first time we start getting anything for the foundation from the group, we decided we'd have a 10% of our take at the weekly meeting. Well, that didn't work so good. The foundation at the end of 41 was still 20,000 in the whole So that was some of the framework. But then with all these screwballs going off and during these promotions, uh, all these things happening, there had to be something to hold it down a little bit. So the first thing we thought about, or Bill thought about, was we should have a voice of AA. So in June 1944, the grapevine was founded. First as a New York local, because we didn't want to push it out to the groups unless they asked for it. A few copies went hither and yon, and then the groups started asking for more of these New York copies. And in six months, it was accepted by the groups at large as an overall voice of AA, exchange of ideas, to similarize our methods, our procedure, and our operation, so that we could be a more help to each other. Well, that was the first part of our route we were putting on to hold this house down. The second part, you might call that the rafters. The second part was a route with a tradition to hold ourselves down, to stick to these three T's that I mentioned that we learned from the bleeding world, to cut out politics, personalities, and property. So the traditions were formed to knock those three down as much as we could. We start telling everybody what happened to the Washingtonians, at least Bill did. A hundred years ago, there was an alcoholic group. There wasn't an alcoholic, really. It was an Hebrew. There were a bunch of non-drinkers in that mess, and they were going to straighten up to the world. And in six months, or I think it was a year, they had something like 200,000 members. They called themselves the Washingtonians. They started in, in Baltimore, Maryland. And they were out of business two years later because they had no... They started getting into politics. They started running other people's business, and they flopped. Then we decided then uh, we started getting a lot of dough from outside. We needed dough very, very badly. But by this time, we were selling a few books, and we were going to pay off our, our foundation costs. Incidentally, I heard the other day we sold better than 200,000 books. But we're getting along to the million. We'll make it yet, maybe. So the traditions were formed to hold ourselves down, to be self-supporting. And since we've been doing that, we haven't stabilized that group. We're standing on our own feet. And that seems to be the hardest thing in the world for a drunk to do. I know in my case, the only reason I hit AA, because there were no more walls to lean against. And last, which I think is the most important thing in AA, is the third legacy. 
I think you all will see it in a few years. Us older fellows see it now. But you say, well, why do we need all this crap, this organization? We have to have organization. You're being organized and you don't know it. This is a bit of an organization. You've got to have organization for your clubs. You're in a group. Suppose we didn't have any organization. Suppose we just went off as we wished with the, with the guy that didn't know have a chance. He would get a cropped up idea of what we were trying to do. He wouldn't have the opportunity. If we can all get a similarized picture that is the finest we can get and present that to the new fellow so it makes it easy for him. Because the people we are getting today haven't gone through the ringer. Why should they go through the ringer? Why should we say that they have to crawl to it? Let's go ahead and try to help them because 90% of the drunks are on, is in the middle class. Only 5% are on Skid Row. Yet we spend so much of that time on Skid Row. I feel sorry for the poor guy that don't have to stop drinking. It's just pitiful. He's just got to kill himself, maybe go nuts before he can have AA. So the spirit legacy, in my estimation, is going to be the stabilizing influence for the time to come. For instance, in the past, the Alcoholic Foundation has been run in the last few years with 15 members. Eight of them are non-alcoholics who have not been out of the New York area. I'd say of the eight, there hasn't been over one or two that have been to several meetings this year. In other words, they are interested in the movement, in the financial end. And Bill has had them on there, but they make no real decisions. The decisions have always been made by Bill and Bob. If Bill and Bob disagreed, the eight would not vote, so there was no majority. In other words, the eight would only vote when Bill and Bob agreed on something. So it was really Bill and Bob that was running this thing up to date. Now, Bob's gone. Bill's tired. It's a damn hard job in AA to be an old-timer, and it was too much to ask a fellow to keep up this strain. Bill is wonderful when he has a new angle to promote. But he gets so weary just going around uh, with a routine of shaking hands and kissing babies and stuff like that. It's a hard job. Maybe you all don't realize it. That's why I think us antiques are good for a little job like this of telling you a story, which maybe somebody else couldn't tell you. But for an A.A. story of their life, we are lousy. We know too damn much. But getting back to this third legacy. What will it do? Well, first of all, the foundation started going to pot financially a couple of years ago because we were taxing the groups without representation. And that's the basis of why all governments are democratic. They have to be. Because if they want to get the dough to run themselves, they've got to have the whole country behind them. That's the same thing with AA. So now that's why New York is so glad that we're all coming into this thing. Now, I'd much rather trust the future of AA on a hundred men throughout the country, delegates from your group and the others, than I would 15 men in New York City who haven't been a hundred miles away from it, with the exception of Bill and, of course, Bob when he was there. It's much safer. I think the five-year man in the average group today sees a much clearer picture than Bill or myself or any of the old-timers. Uh, you see the future. You've got just enough education. And you weren't as badly burnt. We're prejudiced. We know things you can't do. Yet you'll find your clubs, 
your 12-step houses, every new movement that comes in AA, whether scurry or otherwise, is done by a guy between two and four years old. They don't know any better, and half of them work. The other half may be wrong, but we eliminate them fast. But every new idea, exception of the third legacy, has been promoted throughout the country by the newer man. Now, talking about this organization again, what would New York have without an intergroup? What would Los Angeles have to hold 265 groups together without an intergroup office, without an intergroup cooperation? Because one group was started out in Oshkosh, I mean, one end of Los Angeles, well, we don't like that New York, that office downtown. So a new drunk comes there to get well, and that group, and maybe it's not the group he should be in. So he gets a false start on the AA. Where if that group was friendly with all the other groups, the guy would have a good break. He would have a chance to see AA as a whole. That's why I believe that this third legacy is the most important step in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know this has been a long talk. I've gone over what I should have done. But I do think that each group, each area, should know a little bit about this thing. So you can see all these errors we've made. Some have been good. But in my estimation, the guy in life, the guy, the guy that really wrote this book and made this thing work, is God. Thank you all.